My wife, Wendy, and I have five kids, and we homeschool. Uh, our oldest son is in fifth grade this year, though, which means he is taking part in band at Northwest Elementary in Ankeny. Uh, anyone want to guess what time fifth grade band practice begins? 6.30 would be horrible. We get to sleep in all the way till 7. So I, for people that don't really have to get up most days, uh, 7 o'clock on Tuesdays and on Fridays when I have to get Dalton into band practice, I am not a happy camper. And I know most of you, you, you know, playing the world's tiniest fiddle because you're up at 5 or 5.30 or, you know, cry me a river, right? But I don't like it. But I do it because I'm a, I'm a dad. And, you know, I grew up on a farm in, in Iowa, and we rode the bus to school, 99% of the kids at Northwest Elementary in Ankeny get dropped off by their parents. And so it is bumper-to-bumper traffic in the parking lot. Just kind of like we see out here, there's arrows telling us where to go. And it is just crazy. They should do traffic reports for what's the traffic like uh, in these elementary schools when you're dropping kids off. Finally, you get to the place where you can drop off your, your son or your daughter, and then it's bumper-to-bumper back out to the street, and don't you dare think about trying to make a left-hand turn across traffic at that point, because you will make enemies in a big hurry. But because you're going so slowly, and you, I just love to look into people's front seat. You can, I mean, you can just look right into their car. You're just going really slowly past them. And you want, you want to know what I see when I look into the front seats of people's cars at 7 o'clock in the morning? McDonald's, uh, McDonald's yeah. I... I'll tell you what I see. I see a bunch of grumpy, sad, maybe angry, half-asleep-looking adults. I'm looking for hair curlers. Do people still do hair curlers? I, don't, I haven't seen any hair curlers. I see a lot of people still in their pajamas, though. I'll tell you what I do not see. I do not see very many smiles. I don't see a whole lot of joy. And I got thinking about that. You think that's because we're just a generation of joyless parents these days? Is that, what, is that what's going on? I don't think that's it at all. In fact, I have proof that that's not the case because Monday night was the fifth grade band and vocal concert at Northwest Elementary School. So 7 o'clock at night, all those same parents are coming into the parking lot, dropping their kids off, and, and when the band played Hot Cross Buns, <laughs> you've heard that one? And the choir sings some song about the 50 states of the United States of America. I mean, it is packed in that elementary school gym, just like we're packed in here today. And parents and grandparents are taking pictures, and the video camera is rolling, and you cannot wipe the smile off the faces of all those people. And I'm, I'm starting to wonder, what's the difference? What's the difference in people's lives, in their disposition, in their facial expressions? What creates the difference between 7 o'clock in the morning and 7 o'clock at night? I want you to read with me this verse from Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. We'll, we'll put it up on the screen. Read this out loud with me. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Paul is the author of this book, the book of Philippians. And if you did a, a word search, a careful study in Philippians, one of the things you would see is 14 different times in this book, Paul will use the word joy or the word rejoice. 14 different times. It's a short book. It tells us one of the themes of this book of Philippians, one of the themes is joy, which may or may not be a very big deal to you, but when you start digging into the circumstances of Paul's life when he's writing this book, it becomes a really important detail. 
Paul writes this book from prison. He's been arrested and he's been taken to a prison in Rome where he's awaiting trial. And the trial is going to mean one of two outcomes. Either he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison or they're just going to kill him. And his crime was he was proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's in the midst of those circumstances that Paul decides, I think a good thing to do with my time is to write an encouraging letter to the people of Philippi, the people of this church that I helped start, reminding them, encouraging them to always be full of joy in the Lord. Whether it's 7 o'clock in the morning or 7 o'clock at night. Whether it's the middle of the Christmas season or the middle of tax season. Or the middle of a blizzard at the beginning of February. Always be full of joy in the Lord. Paul makes a point of this. Pay attention to this. He, He tells not just the people of Philippi, but anyone who reads that letter. Always be full of joy in the Lord. Now, one of the things the Bible teaches us about joy is that joy is not dependent on our circumstances. Happiness is. My happiness goes up and down depending on what is happening in my life. Joy is a different story. We can be filled with joy no matter what is going on in our circumstances. And yet it seems to me like most of us allow our joy level to fluctuate depending on our circumstances. And so when things are going well, when my circumstances are going the way I want them to be going, I'll be full of joy. And when it's not going quite so well, my joy will disappear. Paul says that's not the case. That's not to be the reality. Always be full of joy in the Lord, Paul says. Circumstantial joy goes even deeper than that, though. Circumstantial joy. Any of you make Christmas cookies or Christmas candy this time of year? Go, yeah, raise your hands. Anyone? Two people? Three? How come I haven't received any from you? I mean, you knew I was going to be here today. I got home on Wednesday, and my wife and kids had been baking all day. And so the house smelled of Christmas goodness, and the kitchen was covered with flour and sugar from ceiling to floor. And now there's these stacks, these plates and Tupperware containers of all sorts of Christmas goodies just all over the house, which means there's a pretty big temptation in our house these days. And that is to eat that stuff just pretty much whenever I want to, in between meals, that sort of thing. And so one of the things we hear at our house a lot these days, it's a common refrain, I think, of moms all across America, especially this time of year, don't eat the peanut brittle. Don't eat the fudge. Don't eat the candy canes before dinner time. You will spoil your dinner. Now, why do you suppose it is moms say things like that? Because moms are mean and they want to rob us of joy. (laughs) Of course not. Moms understand the sugar buzz. Moms understand that if you eat, if you just load yourself up with sugary treats, you're not going to be hungry when it's dinner time. And And maybe you would say, well, why would mom want me to be hungry? Of course, it's not that she wants us to be hungry. It's that moms understand when you are hungry, it's not just that you need the hunger to go away. When you're hungry, it's your body telling telling you, fill me up with good things that I need. Things like protein and and nutrients. And if you just stuff your face with candy and cookies, it's going to mask the hunger the hunger for what your body really needs. And there's a similar reality when it comes to joy. Sometimes in my life, when I tend to start going down the road that says, 
my joy is dependent on my circumstances, I have a tendency to want to stuff my life with things that I think are going to give me joy. And, and so I'll say, you know, if I get everything on my Christmas list, or at least most of the things on the Christmas list, then I'll rejoice. If I get the boyfriend or the girlfriend that I, I so desperately desire, if I get the job or the promotion that I'm looking for, my kids behave the way I want them to behave, if I have more money, if I have enough money, then I'll rejoice. The only problem with this is none of those realities, none of those circumstances are going to lead to real joy. They're not going to lead to lasting joy. And so it'd be similar to a spiritual sugar buzz. Sometimes we go through this reality in our life of faith where everything's going great and I believe in God and I believe in Jesus and I just know I'm going to heaven. But what happens when my circumstances change? then the joy can go away. And so Paul reminds us, always be full of joy in the Lord. And and pay particular attention to what Paul says. Always be full of joy in the Lord, not in our circumstances. Don't be full of joy in your circumstances because your circumstances are going to change. Always be full of joy in the Lord because the Lord's not going to change. God's going to be the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And one of the joys that I have as a pastor is a lot of people share with me the reality of their circumstances. And so I know for a lot of people this has been a good year in terms of circumstances. New relationships, marriages, children in the family, new jobs, new promotions, new houses. I also know for a lot of people this has been a not so good year in terms of circumstances. For some people this has been a year of hardship, a year of grief, a year of loss. And so the real question is, regardless of our circumstances, are our circumstances driving us to God? Whether my circumstances are good or not so good, are they driving me toward a deeper faith, a deeper relationship with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Am I going to put my joy, am I going to base my joy on something that changes, something that doesn't last like my circumstances, Or am I going to base my joy on my relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ? The Bible reading today comes from Luke chapter 1. And it tells the story of Mary, who's pregnant, who's expecting baby Jesus. And she goes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth. And the Bible says one of the things that happens, as soon as Mary greets Elizabeth, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, which is John the Baptist, the baby jumps for joy. Part of what that is telling us is the presence of Jesus means the presence of joy. That passage in Luke 2, the the traditional story of, of the birth of Jesus, the angel appears to the shepherds and the angel says, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. The presence of Jesus means the presence of joy. Can you just say that with me? The presence of Jesus means the presence of joy. One more time. The presence of Jesus means the presence of joy. Can I just ask, is joy one of the first words, one of the first characteristics that you would apply to people of faith? Is it one of the first things that you think of when you think of what is it like to be a Christian? What's it like to follow after Jesus? It just fills your life with joy? Is, is the label that Christians get from people outside of the church, man, those Christians, they're just a bunch of joy-filled people. Or maybe are you like 
so many people who, who believe faith, who believe following after Jesus. It's really about following the rules. It's about avoiding punishment. One of the things the Christmas story tells us over and over again, just blasts it at us. The presence of Jesus means the presence of joy. God loved the world so much, he's going to send his son, and the arrival of his son, the arrival of Jesus, great joy is going to accompany that. And Jesus grows up, he begins his public ministry, people are following him around, wanting to hear what he has to say. People are clamoring to be in the presence of Jesus. He, he drew crowds everywhere he went. And part of the reason was, absolutely, the things that he was teaching, the incredible miracles he was performing, but there was something about being in the presence of Jesus, something about the joy that people experienced when they were there. People wanted to be a part of that. They wanted to be around it. Think of the disciples that follow after Jesus. They're willing to drop everything, willing to leave everything behind in order to follow Jesus. Why? Well, absolutely the love and the grace that they experienced, that they, they knew when they were around Jesus, but also that sense of joy, the, the reality of a joy-filled life that they had when they were with Jesus. And John, one of the disciples, he writes some of the letters that get included in, in the New Testament. And at the beginning of this letter that's called First John, He's reminding people, I was one of those guys that was lucky enough to hang out in the presence of Jesus while he was on earth. And let me tell you, let me remind you what that means. Jesus is life itself, John writes. Jesus is life itself. In the presence of Jesus, that's where we get real life. And I was with him, I was hanging out with him, I, and what I want, I, I experienced the joy of being in the presence of Jesus. And so I'm writing this to you now, and one of the things we want you to understand is we're writing these things so you may fully share our joy. I've experienced this kind of life, this kind of joy that I'd never experienced before until I was in the presence of Jesus, and now I want to share it with you. We live in a world that is increasingly looking for life and joy. According to psychology today, in the year 2000, so 10 years ago, in the year 2000, there were 50 books published on the topic of happiness. 50 books, which to me seems like quite a, quite a few books on that particular topic. Eight years later, in 2008, 4,000 books were published on the topic of happiness. Ooh, what do you suppose is going on there? Is it because someone discovered the secret to happiness? And so now everyone's writing about it? No. Instead, it's more like someone says, here's the way to a happy life, a joy-filled life. Follow after this. And so people buy the book. They follow that way for a while, and then they realize that kind of joy doesn't last. And so someone else says, no, here's the key to happiness. Here's the secret to a life of joy. And we're buying those books. We're publishing those books. And what we discover is it maybe works for a little while, but it doesn't last. People are looking for this kind of life, this kind of joy that is eternal, that lasts forever, that is always with us regardless of circumstances. They're looking for it, but they are not finding it. People want to believe there's something worth believing in. And one of the things the Christmas story tells us is that God wants to give us something to believe in. But when you really start looking at the Christmas story, when you start digging into it, it's pretty unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, an angel appears to a teenager and says, Mary, you're going to become pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's pretty unbelievable. 
And, and then it gets even crazier because Mary's not just a teenager, she's betrothed, the Bible tells us, which is a special kind of relationship somewhere between engagement and actually being married. I mean, it's as close to being married as you can get with act, without actually going through the, the wedding ceremony. So you still called each other fiancé, but if Joseph would have died during the betrothal period, Mary would have been considered a widow. And if you were unfaithful to your fiancé during this betrothal period, one of the punishments was you could have been put to death. So in the midst of those circumstances, knowing this is the reality, knowing that people are going to start finding out she's pregnant, her husband is going to find out that she's pregnant, and he's going to have some options in front of him for how to respond to that news. How do you suppose Mary responds to the news from the angel that you're going to be carrying the Savior of the world? This is from Luke 1, verse 38. Mary responded, I'm the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. Bring it on, she says. If that's what God wants to do, bring it on. She goes to visit Elizabeth, greets Elizabeth. John the Baptist jumps for joy. And Elizabeth says this in verse 45. You are blessed, Mary. And of course, we would all agree, yeah, of course she's blessed. She gets to be the mother of Jesus. She's blessed. But Elizabeth says the blessing goes even a little bit deeper than that. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. You're blessed because you believed. And and what is the blessing of Mary's belief? This is verse 46. She, She starts to sing. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The blessing of Mary's belief, it filled her with joy filled her heart with praise, filled her life with joy. This word belief, we hear that word maybe more this time of year than we do any other time of the year. We talk about belief in the Christmas spirit, belief in Santa Claus. Uh, We were watching uh, Miracle on 34th Street last weekend, and one of the themes of that movie is this theme of belief. Are you a person of belief? If you listen to Christmas music, uh, the theme song to the movie Polar Express is just called Believe, and Josh Groban is singing that song over and over and over again this Christmas season, so much so you want to shoot him with a Nerf gun or something. I mean, just get sick of it. It's a good time of year to be asking yourself, what is it that I really believe? What is it that I really believe deep in my heart, not about Christmas, but about God, about life, about faith, about how God views me, how God views the world. What do I really believe? A pastor named John Ortberg, uh, in his book Faith and Doubt, he says, every once in a while we should just do this little experiment. The experiment is to see what it is that we really believe. He says, start off with just the, the word, this, the two-word phrase, I believe. Say it out loud, I believe, and then fill in what it is that you actually believe. Something that you feel deeply in your heart. You believe deeply in your, in your soul. I believe the children are the future. Teach them. That's probably not heartfelt, right? What do you believe deep in your soul? I believe there's a God who loves me. I believe there's hope for my marriage. I believe change is possible. 
I encourage you to take some time this week, sometime during Christmas break, set aside some time. Just you and God, piece of paper, write out those two words, I believe, and then spend some time really digging in what is it that you really believe about God, about life, about faith. One of the things you'll discover is when you start to state your belief out loud, it starts you moving toward joy. When you say, I believe, and then you fill it in with whatever it is you believe deeply, it stirs your soul, it lifts your spirit. And there's a reason for that. God created us to be people who believe, people who declare our belief. This is what I believe, this is who I am. I'm someone who can figure out what is true and worthy and noble, and I can bind my life to that because I'm someone who believes. And one of the best gifts you can give to someone else is to ask them their opinion because belief matters. I believe. And God created us to be people who believe. So back to this really important question. What is it that you really believe? And what is it that you just think you're supposed to believe? Because there's a pretty big difference there. I want to show you a scene from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. This comes from the second movie of the trilogy, The Two Towers. Sam and Frodo are a couple of hobbits, and they're taking the ring to destroy it in Mount Doom. And it's a ring of power. So all along this journey, there are people trying to get the ring from them. If the ring is in the wrong hands, it can be really destructive. So people are willing to kill Frodo, kill Sam in order to get to the ring. They're facing obstacles all along the way, and one of their big challenges is just to give up. It's not worth it to turn around to quit. So in this scene, we see Sam encouraging Frodo not to give up, to keep going. But also, we really see Sam declaring, this is what I believe. Take a look. There's good in this world, and it's worth fighting for. When you stop and think about it, that, that's a belief that's central to the heart of our God. God creates the world. He says, it's all good. And then sin shows up, and people turn away from God, but God doesn't turn his back on people. He sends his son into the world, and Jesus grows up, and by the way he lives his life, and the things that he does, the, the words that Jesus speaks, he shows us what is good in this world, and what's worth fighting for, and with grace and with truth, Jesus fights for what's good in this world that his father created. And then he invites us into it, he invites us to be a part of it. But it's easy to get discouraged, isn't it? It's easy to face the same kind of obstacles time and time again and get to a place where you just say, I'm not sure that there is good in this world. I'm not sure if it is worth what we're doing. And I would just want to encourage you, portable church, setting up, tearing down every weekend. You ever get to a place where you wonder if it's worth it? It's worth it. Take a look around. This gym is packed with people. It's worth it. Don't give up. Don't give up. Keep doing it. God's called you to this. Look what God, God is doing something here. And, and you get to be a part of it. But I know it's easy to be discouraged. And so I think we need to be reminded the same words that the angel says to Mary. Remember those words? Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing's impossible with God. What's the impossible situation you're facing in your life these days? What's going on relationally, at work? What's going on in your life and you think, there's no way out. There's no way it's ever going to change. Do you believe nothing is impossible 
with God. Just as Mary believed that God was going to do what God said he would do through her, do you believe God's got a plan for you? God's got something he's going to do in and through your life. And as crazy as it may seem, as unlikely as it may seem, it's not impossible because nothing's impossible with God. I want you to read this verse with me from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Again, it's up on the screen. If you can see it through my head, read it out loud with me. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. I can't help but think one of the main differences between people and their disposition and their joy levels at 7 in the morning and 7 o'clock at night, they've forgotten the truth of this verse. They've forgotten their God's masterpiece and that God is creating them anew in Christ Jesus and God has good things planned for them to do. Because it's easy to forget that, isn't it? It's easy to look at the things that are not going well in our lives and to let that sort of overtake our thought processes and and everything that, that we think about becomes these negative realities. And God says, listen, I know it may seem bleak right now, but I'm not finished with you yet. I'm not finished with you yet. I'm not done with you yet. This is Paul. He says, always be full of joy in the Lord. But he also says, always remember who your God is. Philippians 1 verse 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Nothing's impossible. You're God's masterpiece. He's not done with you yet. Do you believe that? Let's pray.